Welcome to our Blue Notes podcast channel. Join us as we chat with experts, analysts and commentators from the Asian region about business, culture and economics. We hope you enjoy the discussion. You can join the conversation by commenting on our website or on SoundCloud. The great leader gets people committed to him or to her so that the genetics and the neurobiology organizes itself to find a way of helping deliver on the agreed vision, on the goals of the leader. Today, Andrew Cornell speaks to Dr. Alicia Fortenberry on leadership, change, and the human mind. Good morning, Alicia, and thanks very much for speaking with us on Blue Notes. Uh, You're here to talk to the ANZ leadership team, but your area of research and expertise is absolutely fascinating. It's it's really human psychology in the in the broadest possible way and then how that plays out within in corporate structures and large organizations and things so particularly fascinating but not just in this era of disruption but you know really for decades leaders have been talking about they want you know flatter structures they want more open leadership more empowerment but it always seems to default back to command and control structures to traditional hierarchy so what are the impediments here? What are the human beings don't like change? You know, people say motivational speakers say, "Oh, change is great. You embrace change. You love change." We don't. We hate it. It goes through the same channels in our brain as physical pain. So that's for starters. Uh, how do you create change? In order to create change, you have to make people feel safe. And what people really fear about change is important to understand. What we fear at the deepest, deepest level about change is that it will disrupt our social relationships. And we will do anything to protect our social relationships because we're relationship-forming creatures, right? So when suicide bombers go and suicide bomb, what they're trying to do is strengthen the relationship with their handlers or with people that they want to impress, and they will die to do that. So change is very, very scary. If you can create, and it's hard to do, it's really hard to do, but if, and I think that's one of the things ANZ is trying very much to do with the new ways of leading. If you can create that, that relationship, safety, that sense that people are very committed to the leaders, are committed to each other, and they feel they belong, then you've got at least the possibility of change. Uh, I mean, this touches on the, on the deeper sort of uh, background and substance to your work, which is in the field of, um, uh, of neuroscience or, um, uh, in fact, more to the point, it's neurogenetics and things. So, like I know, when change comes, there's anxiety. And clearly when we're talking to people about what's going on, you know, there is anxiety around change. And it always seems, change always is happening when there's disruption, so there's that added anxiety. So what essentially is it then that's, you talk about relationships and things, but that anxiety around change, is there a sort of neurological, biological basis or something? Well, yes, absolutely. The amygdala, which is the part of the brain that singles, signals danger, is activated when you feel that you're going to lose some aspect of your support network or that the support network will change and may not be quite as supportive. The moment that happens, the amygdala goes danger, 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 and then the whole brain starts gearing itself to fight, flight, or freeze. So you can't think innovatively. And yet for the organization to grow and thrive and remain, all the organizations today, we've got to be innovative. So you've got this very basic contradiction between the fear of change and the freeze factor and the absolutely need to try something new to to get that growth mindset 
to be feel safe enough to experiment to do things differently. And for that, what you've got to have is people calling out what's right, not just what's wrong, because criticism adds to the feed factor. So you've got to find out what people are doing right and then build on that, even if the results aren't immediately transparent or, or you can't see the outcomes immediately. You've got to catch each other doing things right and then build on that. And what does that mean for leadership, for the kinds of leaders that are, that are needed to create that sort of safety? And well, you've got to go back to what is the essential factor of, of being human. The most essential driver of a human being is to create around us a network of truly supportive relationships. If you think about us on the African savanna, uh, we only had each other and we were quite puny compared to everything that was out there. We didn't have the, the claws, we didn't have the speed, we didn't have the uh, teeth uh, that say the cheetah had, right? So we've just got each other. And we are deeply genetically as well as neurobiologically geared to want to connect with each other and feel safe if we're part of the tribe or we're part of the band. The great leader gets people committed to him or to her so that the genetics and the neurobiology organizes itself to find a way of helping deliver on the agreed vision, on the goals of the leader. And by the way, we're not actually geared to have leaders. This is another complex, this is another awkward piece. We're geared toward the more flatter structures. That's what human beings basically were evolved to be in, a very flat hunter-gatherer type structure, except in terms of crisis. And I believe we are now in, in times of very deep crisis, economically and socially and in the business world and climatically. So our genetics right now are calling out for leaders. And those leaders have to make us feel that they are part of our support network, that they can help us, that they can help us grow, that they can empower us, that they can help make us feel safe and accepted. If they can do that, then we can do anything. And that very simply, boil that down, that's the role of leadership today. And we're not talking here about the sort of cult of the CEO, the, the charismatic leader that you know we saw a lot of in the 90s and early 2000s. It's, it's a different kind of a leader. To some degree. Now, not everybody is going to be able to have a very deep personal face-to-face -face relationship, say with Shane, right? But we are geared to be able to have a potential relationship. So with our world leaders or our business leaders, we feel that potentially we could have a relationship with that person, that they're a potential part of our support network. And you still get that galvanizing of the human elements to believe in what they stand for and to want to be part of what they're working towards. So you can, you can still play on that. Because, I mean, often with these, you know, whether it's new ways of working here at ANZ or whether it's other sort of fundamental changes in structures, the messaging is, is very well crafted you know, and people buy into the vision and they do want more empowerment, they do want to be more engaged, but ultimately it comes down to actions speak louder than words. Um, it's not enough just to have a well crafted message. So what sort of actions do, do staff look for to, to be able to believe and, and follow? Very good. Uh, the, what we look for in our leaders is that they are curious about us, that they want to know about us, that they're interested in us. One thing, very, very simple. You show curiosity about someone, you don't make assumptions about them. This helps you be inclusive. So we want them to be interested in us. We want them to be interested in what we need. After all, every relationship is a mutual satisfaction of need. 
if you can meet my need and I can meet your need, even in the short time that we're talking, we're going to have some sort of relationship. So we want our, our leaders to be curious about us and about what our needs are. We want them to catch us doing things right. We want to feel that we're valued. We want to feel that they actually want us to succeed and want us to grow. So what you can do is you can look for things to praise. Catch people doing things right and build on that. Maybe it didn't immediately result in a great outcome. Okay, but what was right in what we did? Even if it was simply the effort or the intention, what can we build on? We've got to do that. That is absolutely essential. If you want to create change and innovation, you've got to catch people doing things right. So I would say those things are very important. You've got to tell people clearly, as a leader, what you want them to do for you and for your goals. And be very clear about your needs and your expectations. Then people know how to be able to rely on you as part of their support network because they know what you want. You're setting them up for success. So that clarity is absolutely essential. And you empower them by giving them that clarity. So those are some of the actions, the types, and those are sort of headlines. You know, those aren't really specific behaviors, but those are the headlines under which specific behaviors would come. And you've got to create an environment where people can have those behaviors with each other, and that turns on that sense of belonging. And again, galvanizes the human system to do the right thing by the organization and to try to create or, or, or make happen the goals of the leaders. We do live in an age um, where trust is trust in institutions, trust in leadership, uh, you know, trust in large organisations is at a very historically low level. You know, people are very sceptical about these things. And we also live in an age where people want to see the data, they want to see the analysis, you know, the evidence for things. So what sort of, you know, data, analysis, evidence do you look for yourself when you're coming to these conclusions? Well, when I come to the conclusions, I look at the research. Uh, we are learning more than we ever dreamed that we could even know about what it is to be a human being. Before, a lot of management theory, a lot of leadership theory was based really on guesswork. It sounded so good, you know, we all love to change and all this stuff, and it just wasn't true. There's a confluence of disciplines now coming together in science, which is my passion, uh, from everything from uh, evolutionary psychology, biopsychiatry, different, different types of, of science that are coming together and they're giving us a very solid grounding in what human beings are really all about. And if you stick to what the research is telling you, then you can't go too wrong. One of the things the research is telling us is that we are not driven by fact and logic. So here's another one of those awkward rubs. We aren't driven by fact and logic. We, are, we make decisions on the basis of relationship and emotions. If we are going to trust our leaders, they have to do the things, they have to take actions which show us that they are trustworthy. They have to show us what's called benevolent concern. They have to go out of their way to make us feel safer, to do things that actually make us safer, to do things for us, to help us grow, that kind of thing. Uh, we have to, there has to be consistency or congruence that what they say is also what they do. That's another aspect of trust. They have to communicate frequently. Not even well so much as just frequently. Let us know where you are, let us know what's going on. Uh, and they have to be competent to uh, fulfill their promises. And here's one you might not think of. We only trust people with whom we feel we have something in common. So if we feel that we have the goals in common with the leaders or values in common with the leaders, uh, even trivial things, 
the leader has children, so do we, and cares about the kids, so do we. From the very, very profound to the very simple, we need to feel we have things in common with them. And those five C's of trust, as they're called, are essential. And the more we see that, the more we'll trust our leaders. The less we see it, and in terms of world leaders, for a long time we've been seeing less and less and less, and some business leaders too, the less we'll trust. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting tension there, because you're arguing from science and from a rational perspective, but you're telling us that the rational perspective tells us we're <laughs> irrational. We, we don't pay attention to facts. I know. Do you want to know a terrible fact? No. <laughs> if you like me, you'll believe me. <laughs> if you don't like me, you won't believe me. <laughs> but the facts give you an excuse to believe me. Mm. Okay? So we need, to, we need to have justification for our biases. And if you like me, your system will want to make me right. And if I give you the, the facts that would make you feel confident to do that, then that completes the picture. Because there's another sort of underlying tension in, in psychology going you know, back since the discipline first emerged in that to the degree that there is evidence, it's based on groups. You know, 90% of people will behave a certain mm -hmm. way. But that actually doesn't tell us anything about the individual. How do, how do we sort of recognise individual, individuality? And you talk about how we want these personal relationships and connections. And what role does the individual have in this? That's very, very good. I think science can tell us some of the core factors of what it is to be human, such things such as the basics. We're relationship-forming creatures. We don't like change. Uh, we only change when we feel safe the core. Individually, what we're learning now about the genetics is how incredibly individual we are. Uh, we, we just All the evidence is showing more and more that there's a far broader range of human normal behavior and, and so forth than, than we thought. What science is also telling us is that 90%, 90% of all of our assumptions about other people are wrong in some way. And the longer that you've lived with somebody or worked with somebody and shared jargon, the more wrong assumptions you're going to have. So, so to, to understand each other as individuals, we have to be curious. This is the thing that gets lost, I think. We have to be curious about each other as individuals. And that's where inclusion and diversity uh, are so important. Because yeah, we've all got biases, we've all got these assumptions. We've got to actually ask and test those assumptions. And we've got to challenge those assumptions in other people and in ourselves if we're going to really meet and connect as people. Curiosity is, is so key. Well, you don't have an Australian accent, but, <laughs> but you, have, you have lived here for 20 years yeah, yeah, or so. But you do a lot of work in, in the US, in Asia, it, when you look at Australians and, and New Zealanders, we tend to be very sceptical about you know, behavioural sciences and psychology and things. Are there cultural differences in, in how this learning plays out in, in different markets? Oh yeah, of course. Um, I think Americans are more easily enthused uh, and then sometimes we jump on to the next thing quite quickly. I think Australians are more measured. When I first came here, I, just, I wasn't getting the, you know, the, the kind of spark from people. Um, that I would get in the U.S. I had to tone myself down. But once people trust you here, uh, and I'm half both American and Australian citizen, once Australians trust you, I feel that the relationship is steadier. And so I appreciate both. I, you know, I, I appreciate the tell it like it is, even if they'll forget two weeks from then. And that, that steady, consistent, really wanting to know and really wanting to test, uh, I like that a lot. 
Well, as a dual citizen, of course, you won't be allowed to enter the Australian <laughs> Parliament. But uh, nevertheless, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks very much for your time, Alicia. Good luck with your work here, which will affect us all, and I uh, hope it all goes well. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes on Air. Blue Notes on Air was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group.